1: Election season in the United States is heating up, and with it, the debate over the future direction of the country's foreign policy is becoming more intense and more stark. This week, we're going to talk about the Democratic side of the equation, as it's the Democratic National Convention. And that means focusing on who Joe Biden is and what he would do with American foreign policy were he to be elected, as seems likely right now, to replace Donald Trump. We're going to talk about what the implications would be not only for the United States, for its major alliances, for the coronavirus, but, you know, for the future of the world. You know, small stuff like that. That's today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward.
2: Hey. How much malarkey is there going to be on this episode? A lot
1: of malarkey. a A lot of malarkey. A lot of malarkey. A lot of
2: malarkey. Mm-hmm. Good. I'm, this, is, this needs to be a very pro-malarkey episode.
1: I feel like there have not been enough malarkey jokes uh, in this primary, and there really need to be more. It's very important.
2: A hundred percent. We're at a strategic malarkey deficit.
3: <laughs> Get yourself straight, Jack. <laughs> that's, my, that's my Joe Biden impression.
1: By the end of tonight, I will call one of you a dog-faced pony soldier. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I said tonight. We're recording this in the morning. It's just... Uh, We obviously some of us were up late last night working on the Democratic National Convention because we do need to write about it as journalists. It's for those of you who probably be um,
3: up late tonight doing the same thing.
1: It'll be definitely yeah for for those of you who are not super familiar with the ins and outs of the American political system. This is the week in which the Democratic Party gets unfiltered primetime. Television airing to make its case by a convention that would normally be held in person with lots of people meeting and talking and chatting, but this time it's basically a giant television extravaganza uh, hosted by celebrities uh, with uh, various different appearances. Yes, and John Kerry did show up on the foreign policy, or at least the foreign policy segment of the convention, which I think is probably uh, as good a place to start as any. Right, like the the thing that stuck out to me. When I watched that night, which was Tuesday night at the convention, is that the way it presented Biden's foreign policy was not as some kind of uh, real break with what is going on in American foreign policy, but a, a restoration of what was existing before Donald Trump. All right, this isn't just the standard Joe Biden argument that I was Barack Obama's vice president and we like Barack Obama it was it was really striking that one of the speakers was George W Bush's secretary of state Colin Powell the one who uh you know made the case infamously for the Iraq war that he privately doubted uh, and repeatedly objected to in private Powell is is now a reviled figure on the American left for this reason uh but but spotlighting somebody like Powell is a way of saying i think anyway that there is a bipartisan foreign policy consensus in the United States that existed prior to Trump on certain core issues like American alliances, like the need for the United States to be involved in regions like the Middle East and to be uh, playing a proactive role in solving global problems. And this particular vision of what America's role in the world is will will come back to prominence in the event of a Biden administration. do Do you share this read of the kind of message he was trying to send there?
2: Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, the when I did a, a, an explainer on Biden's foreign policy, which we'll link to in the show notes for sure. I mean, I was told by someone who's who's you know involved in this world in the Democratic foreign policy world that you know Biden's on a you know all around restoration project. Uh, so mi- you know, mirroring exactly what you just said, Zach, it it's pretty clear that uh, Biden believes, and he's made multiple speeches to this effect that. There has been a bipartisan consensus since the since World War II that focused on alliance and free trade and democracy promotion and all that, and sort of the, the general contours of American foreign policy. And that and that Trump is an aberration from it, right? That his movement away from alliances, his derision of free trade, his lack of really caring about democracy, um, is not who what America is and is not what America should be, and is trying to basically signal not only to American voters uh, but also to to a global audience that hey. Should I be elected? America's back, baby. Like we're the, the America you love and know. We're coming right back. It's going to be same old, same old with certain changes based on the you know the the criteria of the day, which is maybe be a little tougher on China. Uh, Saudi Arabia may not get as much love as it used to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there will be sort of you know movements at the margins. But the grand contours of American foreign policy, that's what Biden is campaigning on, whereas Trump, of course, is campaigning on America first, but more of that uh, in a second term. And that's sort of at the macro level, the discussion to to have.
3: When we talk about, you know, kind of restoration, you touched on it a bit with alliances, but I think it's worth kind of teasing out what we actually mean. Um, You know, democracy promotion, human rights, that kind of thing, it's very much— Um, You know, Biden's conception is very much like coalition building, right? International alliances, not going it alone, essentially the opposite of America first. Um, Not saying, you know, that America isn't a leader, Um, actually saying the opposite, that America should, you know, be the leader in terms of values and in terms of, you know, pushing to, to move countries toward, you know, the more democratic human rights kind of values that America has always at least, you know, rhetorically, if not always in practice, uh, you know, stood for. Um, But, you know, I think there's also just a kind of plain fact that we should talk about with Biden, which is the fact that he just has a lot of foreign policy experience um, and the level of foreign policy, the depth of his foreign policy experience. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm not saying I agree with everything that he's ever said on foreign policy. But when you listen to him uh, and you read, you know, responses to questions, um, I think I've mentioned this before, but, you know, the New York Times did an interview with, uh, you know, a bunch of the, the primary candidates uh, a few months back. And the one with Biden, when they get into foreign policy, it's just staggering the level of, of difference between him and all the other candidates and and the level of difference between him and Trump. Um, so, you know, he does have this kind of foreign policy experience, you know, as vice president and then in the Senate. So I think, you know, there's there's not just like this kind of vague, grand like return things back. Like he has very specific, kind of very clear, you know, understandings of of the the issues that are going on in each of these countries, in each of the regions um that are of interest to US foreign policy, that are critical. And he really wants to get back to like having America play a, an active role in shaping the world, right? It's not, it's not, you know. Pulling America back, it's you know again like Alex said, you know we're back, baby.
1: Yeah, I, I want to be specific on on what's unique about Biden and what isn't uh, in terms of um, these, these conversations surrounding foreign policy, right? So Biden. Eh, is very non-unique, uh, very very uh, establishmentarian in the sense that what we were what we've been talking about this this quote unquote restoration used to be understood as what everybody in American foreign policy agreed on um, in a broad scope of things, and that is it is specific in a lot of ways, right? It means stop badgering NATO allies about the amount that they spend on defense and threatening to withdraw from alliances. It means stop trying to put pressure or threaten U.S. troop levels in places like South Korea and Germany, which Trump has done. Uh, It means stop being so friendly with Vladimir Putin, at least rhetorically, Um, and with Xi Jinping as well, treating China – uh, like less of a – well, at least having a less friendly personal relationship with authoritarian leaders like those two and like Kim Jong-un and Erdogan in Turkey and and on down the line. Um, it means having a greater concern for human rights violations inside other countries' territories, highlighted not just rhetorically but also through potentially policy pressure and levers. So uh, another good example here is that Trump has been relatively friendly with the Hungarian prime minister, Viktor Orban. uh that was not the case under the Obama administration when Orban was first taking Hungary in an authoritarian direction, and I imagine would not be the case under a Biden administration. So these are all like specific policy areas in which restoration means not just vague sense of promising the United States will go do stuff. It means reorienting the way that the American diplomatic core and uh, political establishment treats Talks with and approaches foreign countries on a specific and particular policy and diplomatic level. I think that part is is more or less what most democratic presidents would have proposed. Biden, though personally, has a sort of idiosyncratic foreign policy record. Like while he does have um, a lot of experience, I I, I kind of struggle to figure out what what's distinctive. About Joe Biden's worldview as compared to other Democrats. Like, you could say that Bernie Sanders had a very, very specific critique of the way American foreign policy had been conducted in the past and wanted to orient itself towards a left take that I think was not outside the consensus I was just describing, but certainly towards the more intervention skeptic. Uh, scaling down uh, American involvement in foreign conflicts, less uh, willing to engage in confrontation with left wing regimes, that, that kind of thing. Biden, though, uh, when I think about his record, right, the things that stick out to me personally, and maybe there are other things for, for you too, are sort of at odds with each other. One was this a weird neo-imperialist plan to break up Iraq to solve the Iraq war in, in the middle of the 2000s when the insurgency was raging. He wanted to set it up into three different regions, a Kurdish region, a Shia region, and a Sunni region. And uh, that is generally something that is, is was understood at the time by most people and is now clearly seen to have been a recipe for catastrophe. Partition doesn't tend to solve uh, ethnic conflicts and conflicts over resources as other countries in the Middle East can uh, very, very easily attest to. And that that seems to me like a a policy that he flagged for quite some time, uh, but but would have been quite harmful if implemented and also represented a kind of American imperial overreach about what you do with other countries that you're occupying, at least in my mind. Uh, On the flip side, though, in the early Obama administration, Biden was the most vocal advocate of scaling down America's presence in Afghanistan, of instead of employing a counterinsurgency strategy that involved escalated troop levels and an attempt to outright crush the Taliban through uh, sort of engagement with the local population, a mirror of what happened in Iraq in the late 2000s, Biden was proposing a more uh, terrorism-focused model where the U.S. would have a lighter troop footprint and focus more on ensuring that there aren't uh, significant threats to the United States emerging in that country. And, you know, the past 10 years have shown that the counterinsurgency strategy in Afghanistan didn't go all that well. And Biden's policy, if implemented, the Obama administration didn't, obviously, could well have uh, led to a scaling down of American presence there and, and saved a lot of lives and treasure I don't know, uh, because one, these two policies, to my mind, one of which is a kind of, and I'm sorry for droning on this long, it's just, it's really uh, striking to me that one of them is a kind of overreach of American power, and the other one is about scaling down and limiting its presence. It doesn't strike me as having a particular ideological through line.
3: Yeah, you know, I actually think that that you kind of put exactly the right fine point on it, which is... You know, and I think, Alex, you and I have talked about this a bit before, and, and maybe I think we disagree a little bit. Um, you know, I think the comparison or, or rather the contrast to Bernie Sanders is really apt because, you know, I, I don't think Biden has a broad kind of ideological worldview that goes beyond just the kind of basic alliances, let's work together, uh, diplomacy is good. Um, but I think he very much handles again, kind of going back to the fact that, you know, he was vice president and he did deal with a lot of foreign leaders and foreign countries on very specific issues for, you know, eight years. Um, and, you know, again, in the Senate had, you know, dealt with a lot of issues on foreign policy and very specific kind of granular policy level. I think the way he really approaches all of this is, is somewhat on an ad hoc basis. Um, essentially, you know, I will deal with each crisis as it comes, or I will deal with each issue as it comes, but there's no kind of overarching, like, in all cases, we need to pull back American imperialism. Or, you know, in all cases, we need to um, promote, you know, human rights over everything else. In all cases, we need to limit U.S. military intervention, right? It's not in the same way. And, I, you know, a lot of my criticisms of Bernie Sanders were that he lacked the kind of specific drilling down into policy. Well, he had this kind of very clear grand vision when it came to, you know, the actual nitty gritty of what does that mean in Yemen or what does that mean, you know, towards Iran or what does that mean towards Venezuela? Right. It, it kind of a, a lot of times would kind of fall apart and be like, well, we would uh do some things, you know, and that's not fair. He had more specifics. But but with Joe Biden, you know, when you ask him a question, it's very much, you know, you ask him about China. It's not necessarily put in this kind of grand vision terms. It's very much like, well, here's the issues. And you can see this in his response. He's like, well, you know, they have issues with water. They have too much cadmium in their ground. They have, you know, he said this, he's like, well, they have, you know, Uyghurs in in concentration camps and, you know, they have issues with Hong Kong and blah, blah, blah. And he just kind of goes into all these very granular issues. And I think, you know, he very much looks at it in a kind of specific kind of segmented way. And and honestly, that was a huge criticism of the Obama era foreign policy was that there wasn't a broader kind of grand vision and that, you know, when you push on one lever, something else moves. And there was a huge criticism, especially in the Middle East, that there wasn't a kind of broader grand strategy. If you remember, you know, the lack of grand strategy was like this huge conversation over and over in the Obama administration, which is like, what is your grand strategy? And they were like, well, we don't have one. We're just going to deal with like the kind of things that are happening. And sometimes they don't always fit together really well. And sometimes there isn't a good answer. So I think, Zach, you know, the fact that he had one kind of really seemingly like American overreach imperialist kind of approach in Iraq and like the opposite in Afghanistan, to me, that that's not surprising for Joe Biden. That makes sense that he looks at one specific conflict and says, what's the best way to deal with that in this way, in my opinion?
2: All right. I'm going to try to synthesize a lot of thoughts I had from listening to both of you. So one is, I think, if there's an overarching ideology for Joe Biden, it is a phrase he keeps saying over and over and over again. And I think, Zach, you may have said this earlier, so apologies if I'm repeating. But what Biden says over and over and over again is that America cannot lead by the example of its power, but by the power of its example. So effectively, like America needs to, you know, walk the walk uh, when it comes to actually being quite democratic at home when it comes to really, you know, working with allies or across the board that it can't just be America has a strong military and you do what we want because we're America. It's, we also have to show that we're kind of benevolent and we're worth following and and being friends with. And that in sort of the, in the grand scheme is how Biden sees the world. Now, when it comes to sort of specificities and, and how to deal with, with certain countries, I think there are sort of two things to remember. One is that his decades of experience is obviously good because experience is good, but it also provides him with a lot of unfortunate heuristics. Um, so, you know, when he's in the Iraq example, like it's part of it. And I've talked to people, I, I did a whole uh, Joe Biden Iraq story. Um, but when you talk to people who were with him in negotiation rooms about what to do with Iraq, one, they say that he's not particularly like he, he, he reverts to a lot of things that he knows, like Ireland and Bosnia. And he noticed that like there were tons of tons of partitions and, and, and ethnic groups sort of being separated. And so those are the kinds of things that he has in his head when he's thinking about how to deal with, with problems.
1: That's really yeah. interesting. I didn't I didn't know that. That's that's a really, really helpful and clarifying point. Yeah, about I mean, if, if yeah. you want
3: to use the Balkans as a great example, of, <laughs> it feels like that's maybe not the most useful right. example of successful partitions. I don't know. That's me.
2: That's what he has in his head, right? So um, when it comes to, like, how to move forward on a new subject, he has trouble absorbing new information, or at least seeing things differently, because he has so much history in his head. And so, like for example, I'll mention one more time: when it came to Iraq, he was constantly speaking with Emma Sky. She said this on the record, so I can talk about it. Uh, Emma Sky was um, advisor to General Ray Odierno, who was leading, you know, helping lead the American response in Iraq, and she was constantly saying like he couldn't get out of this mindset; like he he just would not accept new information. It was he just kept reverting to to Ireland and, and et cetera. Okay, so there's that. Then I think also Biden is an incrementalist in the sense that even if you work with allies, even if you're America, there's only so much you can get out of certain countries, despite what you may want. This is a constant criticism of Biden, but I actually find it a strength personally, which is like when he's constantly, you know, glad handing and meeting with people and talking to them forever. The reason he's doing it is because he feels like you can't make the hard ask of a certain leader, whether an autocrat or a Democratic leader. Um, unless you've actually had those conversations. And, you know, you have kind of like two, three touch points. It's very sort of consulting in a way. Um, And then on that like fourth or fifth meeting, you make the hard ask. And if you get what you, you, then you kind of take what you get. Biden believes you can only really get what you get. You can't really push to a certain limit. It's why he believes in sort of counterterrorism strategies as a way to sort of keep mowing the lawn of terrorists as opposed to rebuilding a nation to make it no longer accept terrorists. He's very skeptical of, of nation building as a concept. And so when you put all this together, I think you see Biden as a guy who believes that America should like, you know, do what it preaches has issues getting out of his own head when it comes to history, but also believes that you can make very small movements forward. And I think that the, a mixture of those three is sort of the through line in Biden's history.
1: Um, a lot of that is very reminiscent of the Obama administration in in one of the ways that Jen was pointing out earlier, uh, which is this, this idea not just of taking things on a case-by-case basis, but also a, a sense of pragmatic limitation, right? This was one thing that... I think really frustrated people, especially people on the left with Obama, and an foreign policy, weirdly people on the right sometimes, uh, an idea that there uh, were necessary compromises that needed to be made. And that the U.S. should not shoot its uh, ambitions to be so high as to, you know, solve all sorts of different problems in one fell swoop, right? The Iran deal to me is the sort of yeah, the Iran deal is a perfect example. Yep, exactly. It's it's one of Biden's themes when he talks about foreign policy. Now we're going to get back in the Iran deal and we're going to get back in the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, Two things that John Kerry mentioned in his speech on Tuesday night when he's talking. He was, of course, Secretary of State during that time, so he would doubt his accomplishments. But uh, it, those are latter-day Obama administration agreements that Biden would almost certainly attempt to re-enter in the event that he becomes president in 2021. And they reflect this idea that uh, while neither one solves forever the problem of climate change or Iran's uh regional presence or even its nuclear ambitions necessarily it does make those problems a lot less acute and goes a long way towards helping people in in you know get a handle on the problems created by the underlying problems and that that seems to be reflected in these uh interviews that you've been having and and with people who know Biden and are close to him
2: yeah, I mean, quick caveat on the Iran deal is that um, oh, uh, Biden would only re-enter the Iran deal as long as Iran was in co- back in compliance with the deal, which they are not at the moment, uh, and uh, would still push for further negotiations to so try to get missiles and support for terrorism stuff in it. Uh, that's the condition that he's laid out. And then to, to carry on what you were saying, on day one, he would re-enter the P- Paris Climate Agreement and start pushing on coronavirus. That's like Biden day one foreign policy. He's an incrementalist. And so I don't—I wouldn't expect— I, it's going to cause problems because there's this sort of narrative about American foreign policy that we can do great things, and we can. We, we have. Um, but Biden doesn't necessarily see it that way, and frankly, the world is perhaps too complex and too uh, you know, fragmented at the moment in order to create this grand strategy towards something. Um, now he has methods to deal with it. He's going to like in the first couple of days or months of his presidency, he's going to try to get some sort of conference with allies in Europe and Asia again to say, we're back. Hey, what can we focus on? He's probably going to turn a lot of their attention towards climate change in China. And with China, obviously, you know, Biden is not expecting you know, Xi Jinping goes, you're right, Joe, we should be democratic. We should get, you know, stop interning Uyghurs and we should stop cracking down to Hong Kong. But he may get something out of them. And for Biden, he would consider that a success. For tons of people, they would say, unless you get China to completely change its ways or, frankly, like, crack the, the Communist Party as it is, um, that's a that's a failure. And that's the kind of tension he's going he would deal with as president, is that it, what he deems a success is a lot less than what a lot of analysts and a lot of uh Political opponents and even some of his own party would would want to see.
3: So I've got some some thoughts on that, um, and, and I, I kind of want to talk about some of the similarities, um, which is not going to sound popular when I just say it like this. Some of some of the similarities in in Biden's approach to Trump's.
1: There are um, a lot, yeah, y-
3: yeah, and and some of the differences, um, and I think you know where we're going to see you know we could see some problems. But...
1: I, I love your provocation, and we're going to take a break. <laughs> but when we come back, we're going to return to. Uh, I think two themes. Uh, First, we're going to talk about similarities between Biden and Trump, which I'm sure the Biden people will not like to hear. And second, what the hell Biden's going to do about the fact that the world is a mess in the event that he does take over in twenty twenty one.
4: Exaggerations and half-truths aren't new in politics, but now with AI, people can create fake videos of candidates to sway your vote. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and I've teamed up with technology expert and law professor Nita Farahani on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, for a three-part miniseries, AI on Trial. Our second episode presents the hypothetical case of a hotly contested Senate race that is derailed when the leading candidate is accused of using AI to enhance his performance and hurt his opponent.
1: How are we supposed to know when the technology becomes very difficult to validate something as truth or lies?
4: Do existing laws, policies, and government agencies sufficiently safeguard the political process?
2: Political speech is so tightly protected under First
1: Amendment that it makes regulating in this space a real challenge.
4: And what needs to happen to protect democracy in time for the real presidential election in November?
1: When our elections are so close, where it comes down to nail-biting endings, a few voters here and there can really lead to differences in outcomes.
4: The episode is out now. Search Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back, worldly listeners. We've been talking about Biden foreign policy, as the Democratic Convention has highlighted the possibility, maybe even the likelihood, that this guy will be the next president of the United States. Uh, and he has a long foreign policy record to dissect as we've been going over the show. But uh, when we went into the break, Jen said something that I thought was really striking, which is that she sees a lot of similarities between Biden and Trump. Jen, why don't you just uh, explain a little bit for listeners who may be skeptical about the point that you're making?
3: Yeah, Um. so – a few things. The first is, you know, Biden's kind of very clear um, belief and emphasis on personal relationships as being really important. You know, Alex talked about this before, that you have to develop these kind of, you know, contacts and relationships with people before you go for the big ask. And he's, you know, he's said this many times throughout his career. He's talked about it in, you know, his books that, you know, he very much believes that that one-on-one personal relationships are really where the work gets done and where negotiations happen. Um, and that, you know, you find common ground. And, you know, obviously, I think that's a very similar approach to to Trump's kind of negotiation strategy on on the foreign stage, right? He has talked about his relationship previously with Xi Jinping, said they had a really great relationship. Um, he's obviously said that that he's in love, that they are in love with uh, Kim jong-un. and and Trump fell in love through their talks. And their negotiations. And he's very much kind of this one-on-one, let's just get each other in the room and talk about things. And Biden is very much part of that. You know, he, in his 2007 memoir, he said, you know, uh, it's important to read reports and listen to the experts. More important is being able to read people in power. And I think that goes to the the kind of second thing, which is, again, you know, something that, that Alex, you brought up with these kind of heuristics, right? These like mental models that that Biden has that he uses to kind of, you know, I mean, we all have these, right? We all have these kind of ways of seeing the world that, that we interpret and that we kind of revert back to examples and, and analogies that help us work through things. That's normal, right? The point that you made, Alex, about his difficulty in kind of breaking out of those or in absorbing new information, I think that is a very similar trait in a lot of ways, and maybe not to the same degree uh, as Trump, but it's it's very similar in a lot of ways, right? We've heard over and over in the past four years that you know, Trump will have these kind of very hardcore set ideas about the way something works. And, you know, no matter how many times you tell him, you might convince him for for that day or that week, but he's going to ultimately revert back to what he thinks is the truth. Now, you know, again, I don't think it's, I think it's a difference in degree. I think, you know, Trump has a, a much harder time with the truth, but I, I think, you know, th- both of those things are are very similar. Um, and, you know, there was this really great Politico piece recently um, by uh, Alex Thompson at Politico about the kind of Obama-Biden relationship. But there was a part in that, you know, that really stuck out to me. Um, and they were talking about how, you know, this piece is about uh, basically uh, Obama's kind of preferring to support Hillary Clinton and her run for president as his successor rather than than Biden. Um, and they're talking about kind of comparing Hillary and, and saying that, you know, she uh would would do the reading, right? Before any meeting, she would do her homework, she would arrive prepared. Um, there's this quote that said, you know, in situation room meetings, she had the thickest binder and had read it three times. And go on, it goes on to say that Biden was not a binder person, right? He he would show up, maybe not super prepared in terms of doing the reading, but would just kind of go off of, of his gut and write what he knows and and he would frequently blurt things out, what he was thinking, and his aides and even Obama would be like, what are, stop talking, Joe. Uh, I think everyone who lived through the Obama presidency remembers that, uh, that tension. But, you know, again, that's very similar to Trump in a lot of ways. And I think, you know we've seen the limits in the Trump administration of that personal gut level kind of foreign policy and we've seen how, you know, if you don't do the hard work, if you don't have your, you know, your underlings doing the serious diplomatic work behind the scenes to get things done, and you just rely on personal relationships, or you just rely on, on your gut and you're not doing the readings in the binder, th- that you will maybe run up against limits of, of how much you can actually get done. And, and that's kind of one of my concerns with the Biden kind of personal relationship approach.
1: So I I was trying to find this quote while you were talking, Jen, that I I can't seem to dig up, but it's from Biden's 1988 presidential run, uh, which a lot of you may not remember. What he said was basically a criticism of the Democratic Party's reliance on white papers and 12-point plans. And essentially, it was a kind of anti-wonkery, an argument that Democrats need to get past uh, their obsession with policy specifics and more towards uh, reaching people where they are, how they feel about things, uh, what they believe, yeah. and this, this strikes me as very consonant with what uh, you know you've both been describing in the way that he thinks about the world. Um, it, it seems that there's a consistent sense uh, in his political and diplomatic style of elevating these this kind of experiential way of knowing the world over more abstract policy thinking that seems to have animated Obama and Clinton. Well, and and. Bill Clinton, for that matter, though he also was a pretty excellent gladhander. Uh, I think the difference speaks to the, the last point that Jen raised, which is that Biden probably would have all the people in his White House doing that underlying work while he likes right. to talk to people. Uh, Trump does not care about using the levers of government, whereas if there's one thing we, we have learned about Biden from his long time in office is that he has a lot of respect for the institutions of government. And cares a lot about what the people at the State Department are doing, what the people at Defense are doing, the National Security Council, right? These are institutions he would rely on to get necessary information. And it's a pretty important point of asymmetry, even if there are some old guy who likes to talk to people who he finds as friendly similarities between the the two candidates in this race.
0: Yeah,
2: I mean, the the line that works that I think of when it comes to Biden, it's one that I know he and his team have mentioned a bit before is that it's better to shake 10,000 hands than to travel 10,000 miles. And I think it speaks to this entire thing, right? It's like, yes, you can travel the world, you can learn all you, you can, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the one-on-one people in the room, which um, speaks to that sort of Trumpian instinct. Although I would say two kind of caveats to the, to the Trumpy thing. One is where Trump cannot like literally take in information or in fact what he believes blocks out anything, Biden filters new information through what he already believes and that can lead to similar outcomes. But right. I think that's an important difference. Yeah.
3: Yeah. That's that's a good point.
2: The second is, and, and to to what Zach was alluding to is like a lot of the people, a lot of the people that Biden would have in his administration have served in government before, um, have were from the Obama administration, know how this works, and so even if Biden has his own sort of top level views, which of course do filter down, and then people serve the president, like Biden's just going to have a lot of experts working across the board, and so that helps actually run affairs of state. So when we when I when I think about sort of a Biden sort of administration, I think of. You know, a, a guy who has preconceived notions, who will, you know, and and who desperately wants to run foreign policy. Unlike certain presidents, Obama was was a little hesitant to run foreign policy himself. Biden's going to want a big hand in this, and it's probably what he'll have a lot of um, most interest in more than anything else. And so the fact that Biden will have you know people who know what they're doing across the board doing the work that actually is a is a step forward. That actually is a, is a big deal. Um, what, what the results will be, of course, is left to be determined, but that is, I think an underappreciated point that this will be, uh, should Biden win a pretty expert filled administration.
1: That brings us to the last thing I really wanted to talk about, which is like day one Biden administration. Everybody acknowledges that the top issue is going to be the coronavirus, right? And this is, while uh, in many ways a domestic American issue, a lot of the problems with the American response are are purely the result of domestic mismanagement. uh, There's a huge and potentially even growing international component to it uh, surrounding vaccines, as we talked about on the show uh, last week, right? So the question is, uh, and and you know not just vaccines, also travel restrictions. Like this disease doesn't <laughs> adhere to national borders. To funding of the WHO, which the Trump administration has you know they're threatening to pull out of the WHO, which a Biden administration would would certainly re-enter. It's like what what does the world look like in January if you have Joe Biden running point on the global coronavirus response? versus a uh, continued Trump administration foreign
2: policy wise I mean you that's that's a tough one because you do have a, you would have a president who would like model the right behavior would sort of try to push on all levels of US government to get uh, vaccine and, and treatments and, and sort of get people to, to abide by social distancing. foreign policy I, I would imagine um, in Biden sort of you know work with allies as sort of if every foreign policy issue is a bunch of circles like at the center of each one is work with allies, I would imagine, In his sort of, you know, conference of getting Asian and European allies and South American and and African allies together, it would be how do we like coordinate a a global coronavirus response? Are there sort of global rules we should all follow? Are there um, ways that we can already set up channels now to distribute vaccines or treatments or, you know, what are what are possible global guidelines we can have for bringing back travel and certain economic um, supply chains, whatever that may be? Um, That sounds like a Biden-y thing to do, right? Get everyone in a room, shake some hands talk it out, you know, kumbaya it a little bit, um, which of course Trump has been resistant to. I I would assume that would lead to certain progress, although who knows how far down the rabbit hole will be with the coronavirus at that point and who knows how many actual like ways he, you know, he personally with his leadership can can make things better. But I would imagine just policy-wise, like if had Biden been in charge since the start of this crisis, I would imagine that would have been the course he would have taken and perhaps one could imagine we'd be in a better spot. It'd be hard to imagine a worse spot than we're in.
3: Yeah, I, I totally agree um, on in terms of working with allies, you know, uh, as we talked about, you know, on the show last week, the kind of dangers of vaccine nationalism and this sort of, you know, every country for itself, let's make sure my people get a vaccine first, um, you know, kind of issue. I don't think we would see as much of that from a Biden administration, right? Of course, every president's gonna want to make sure their country is taken care of. I, I don't mean to say that he, you know, wouldn't be concerned about that. I'm sure he would. But you know, as as Jen Kirby, our, our colleague who is on the show, um, has written about extensively, you know, there are these kind of kind of cooperative uh, groups that have come together, these groups of countries who are kind of opting in to this system of making sure that, you know, basically no matter how rich or poor you are as a country, that if you kind of invest and, and put into this kind of pool of investing in a whole bunch of vaccines that you will make sure that you will get, whichever vaccine kind of works. Um, and it's essentially designed to make sure that there aren't these massive kind of global disparities between the rich and the poor and getting access to a vaccine. And I think that's a really important thing. And I think you can obviously see that the Trump administration is not the kind of administration that would be super in, in interested in being part of that, right? And we've seen that already. Um, but I could definitely see a Biden administration, you know, either coordinating something similar or, you know, trying to, to think about ways for the U.S. to participate, um, and I think from a global perspective, I think it would be very good for humanity if, you know, one of the world's most powerful countries, you know, uh, the United States, didn't just think about its own citizens and its own people and actually thought about, like, how do we make sure that the world gets gets vaccines? And again, not even just for for altruistic purposes, though there, that obviously is a good thing to make sure that, you know, the whole world even if you're a poorer country, has access, but also it benefits the United States, right? Because the more people who are vaccinated around the world, the you know faster and easier it is for us to open up to tourism and, and trade and open borders and things like that. So, um, so I, you know, I could definitely see the global kind of coordinated response under Biden being much more productive and much more kind of egalitarian while also still kind of pushing forward American interests.
2: So putting all this together, I do think we should talk about, you know, While a lot of the Biden campaign is, you know, the Obama-Biden campaign, I like Obama. Obama's my guy. I worked for him. Um, There is uh, a big difference between them. And and I'll keep this at a pretty high level just because of time. But there's a book called The Long Game by Derek Cholet about Obama's foreign policy. And, And the basic point of that book was like Obama's vision was like if you turn the ship of state two degrees over the long term, that ship ends up in a completely different destination than, than it would otherwise. And, and the implication of, of, of that book and then that sort of analogy was to say that Obama did have a completely different vision for American foreign policy in mind, that he hoped America's relations with the world would ultimately change based on some adjustments he, he would make in his time in office. I really don't think Biden sees it that way. Um, like like I've said now a couple times, I think he's an incrementalist not in the way that Obama thought of it. Like, I, I change a few things of the way American foreign policy operates and therefore we're in a different place down the line. I think Biden wants to work within the usual framework, within the historic framework, make a couple, you know, important changes and, and push on certain areas. But just to kind of make certain situations better, not ultimately reform American foreign policy, which was, I think, an underlying goal of Obama's. And so that's sort of their major switch between them. And where Trump tried to remake American foreign policy was to take it all down and rebuild it in his image. So I'm, Biden is not in the middle point. Um, Biden is much closer to Obama for sure, but he is between those two, um, I would say, in terms of like where on sort of the spectrum of a presidential thinking on on traditional foreign policy.
3: Yeah. There's one last thing I kind of want to say on that. Um, And I actually wanted to bring this up earlier, so I'm glad we kind of got back to it. You know, in the comparison to Trump, I think in a post-Trump presidency world, that incrementalism is going to look really different than it did before Trump, right? Um, I think on one, you know, on the one hand, there could be, you know, a, a very big kind of global sigh of relief that, you know, things aren't going to radically change from one day to the next in the way that, you know, they often feel like they do with the Trump administration, right? Um, just randomly deciding to talk about buying Greenland, for example, or, you know, even broader things, like full-on— Still a good idea. Know.
1: I still think that's the most <laughs> defensible thing Trump has done in foreign policy. It's a
2: great idea. I genuinely want Greenland as part of
3: America. Anyway, not my point. Um, but you in, know, in, in more seriously, you know, I, I also think, on the other hand, that Trump has to some degree shown, I think in particular on China— the limits of incrementalism or the, the limits of not trying to go hard and shoot for the moon and and really just say, no, this is, this is not okay. This is what's happening with China. We need to go hard. This incrementalism is not working. And I think, you know, Trump's willingness to just burn it all down and say, this isn't working. We're going to do something radically different. I think in some cases, you know, could actually end up showing the kind of incrementalist, slow, let's do a little bit here and there, to be, I don't want to say weak, but to, you know, maybe a lack of of boldness or lack of vision, which is not to say that Trump has been successful in doing all of this. That's a a difference. But I do think, you know, in a post Trump world where we've seen the Trump administration just really just say, you know, I don't care if it's ever been done before, we're going to do it. Um, I do wonder, you know, what that kind of slower incrementalism looks like in that world.
1: And that's where we're going to leave you today. I want to thank our producer, Jackson Bierfeld, for all of his hard work on the show. And I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, You know, we'll see you next week, then. We'll, We'll be talking almost certainly about Trump's foreign policy on display at the RNC.
0: Bye. Malarkey.